0: I'm just going to read a few verses from the second half of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Corinthian culture was very similar to our own. And uh, I hope that we'll see in the challenge that Paul gives to the church here um, something for us all to think about. Uh, Page 1148, 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 12 to 20. Uh, The Corinthians were saying, I have a right to do anything. (laughs) But Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Uh, Corinth, uh, the city where this letter was received, they were one of the great cities in ancient Greece. um, Had a population around 650,000. So by ancient standards, that's massive. Huge uh, military place, a huge um, place for commercial trade, hugely influential in terms of the cultures. Uh, They had a 14,000-seater theatre, and they hosted the Ithymus Games, which was second only to the ancient Olympic Games. So this is like a really strategic city. It would be the equivalent of one of the world's cities today, New York, London, Tokyo, something like that. Uh, and rather like Ephesus, there was this big cult in Corinth to Artemis or Diana. Diana is the Roman name, Artemis the Greek name. It's the same god, the goddess of fertility, of love. Now this is a picture of um, one of the temples that stands in Corinth today. That's probably more like what it would have looked like a huge temple worshipping a false god and mixed up with all the kind of pagan worship of these false gods was these kind of sexual rites that the people would perform, huge sexual immorality that went, was caught up and all sorts of things happened inside this temple that you wouldn't want to speak of, behind closed doors Um, prostitution, people buying and selling one another, Um, young children being prostituted for sex all with a hope that these kind of acts performed before this false god would arouse the pleasures of this go- god and the god would bless them. This is the kind of city, really licentious, completely me centered. And it's in this city that these slogans that we had in the re- reading came through. These are some of the things that the people of Corinth were saying everything's permissible for me food for the stomach and stomach for food. They're basically saying uh, whatever feels good, do it. Whatever feels natural and right to you, you're free. And Paul takes these slogans which he's heard and he quotes them back at the people, but he puts a little premise at the end, and you'll see that. Uh, just look at this slide here. Paul responds You're saying everything's permissible, but not everything is beneficial, Paul says. You're saying food for the stomach, stomach for food. Can I eat, drink, be merry? But Paul says, But God will destroy them both. Hugely licentious culture. Uh, there's a man called Cicero who was a Roman philosopher. This is no different to our culture, is it? Listen to this. He says, Is there anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs with courtesans? But his view is contrary to the license of this age, but also to custom and concession of our ancestors. When was that which was allowed not allowed? So here's a person who's speaking to that culture and saying, just do whatever feels good. Who's somebody else to tell you that you shouldn't do this? Because it's natural to you, and indeed our forefathers did it. Who should tell you? That quote was, first century, 2,000 years later, we're in a culture that hasn't really changed. Isn't our culture, the media, politics in many ways, a similar message is being portrayed, isn't it? Just follow your dreams, do what you like, whatever feels good, pursue it, and the consequences don't really matter. But when Paul responds, as you've seen there, he's not just teaching the Christians what to think. The amazing thing about Paul is he teaches Christians how to think how to respond to these kind of things that culture is throwing at you all the time. And that's the key thing for us as Christians, not just to know what to think, but to learn how to think, how to respond. Because every situation is different, and as soon as you learn an answer to one problem, another problem rises up. So learning how to think is actually more important than having answers. And that's what Paul tries to do in terms of educating us. The problem is, though, we're all born as sexual creatures, aren't we? It doesn't take long for a little boy to be taught... Uh, he's playing with his uh, his uh, um, bread buns there and having a, a bit of a game he's just a young boy, he's very innocent he's a not so innocent young boy but we don't have to teach young people um, we're, we are sexual beings, all of us it's a bit of fun but we are all sexual beings and that presents each of us with a real challenge because as you saw in our passage Paul challenges us, verse 18 to flee sexual immorality and yet we're wired as sexual beings and so that pressure then is very very difficult Um, But what we need to think about, rather like last week, when the gospel so transforms our heart, last week we were thinking about how God enables us to see beauty and express beauty as a reflection of his greater beauty. And this week, in a similar way, God wants to help us to express our sexuality in a way that reflects the goodness of God in creating us as sexual beings. So it's not so much, how do I want to act and how do I feel is right, but what would be honouring to God? And that's where we have to bring everything back again to the gospel. And the two issues I'd like to talk about tonight um, are that of singleness and of pornography. Now, I don't say singleness as an issue in the sense that if you are single, that is an issue. Our culture might say that, and we're going to address that. The Bible is very clear that singleness in itself is not an issue. What is an issue is the way that our culture speaks to people who are single, often saying you can't be truly fulfilled if you're not married and in a sexual relationship. So let's tackle that one to start with. Again, this is a huge subject and we can't really do it justice tonight. But I'd like us to have a little look at the passage together. And notice 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, that purity honours God. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And Paul goes on to talk about the importance in verse 19. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price, so honour God with your bodies. Because the Bible is really clear that all sexual intimacy should be experienced between a man and a woman, and only ever within marriage, that presents a huge challenge, doesn't it, to many people. It presents a huge challenge to you if you're single and would like to experience sexual intimacy. And I think often Christians are caught between a rock and a hard place here because our culture is a sex-obsessed culture that says unless you have experienced sex, a sexual relationship, you're not fulfilled. And often our church says, and if you're not married, you're not fulfilled. That Neither are right, but they're two things that we often are heard to say. And so if you're single, it can present a huge challenge to you. But I want to help us to see that both are lies. You can be fulfilled if you don't experience a sexual relationship. And you can be fulfilled if you never experience marriage. What Paul makes clear is that both singleness and marriage are gifts that he gives to each of us. Uh, Paul talks about it in the next chapter, chapter 7, verse 7. Each man, each person has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And he's talking about some are blessed in that season of their life with singleness, some for the whole of their lives. Others are blessed for a season of their life, probably for the rest of their life with marriage but both are gifts that God has given and I want us to see that what the Bible wants to affirm is that the state that you are currently in if you are single if you are married is God's best for you it was much easier for me to say that a few months ago when I wasn't married because it's always easy to speak on the subject of singleness when you're single I know a number of times I've heard people who are married speaking on singleness and I used to just get frustrated Um, but Here's a lady. Many of you will have heard of Jim Elliot, who was a famous missionary. Uh, he, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, died in June just last month. And she said this: "God never denies our heart's desire except to give us something better." Now sometimes if you're single and you long to be married, and often this is uh, women, not exclusively, that's a really hard truth to hear and believe. And it's not that you can just download this information and accept that's true, but when we trust in God's goodness, it is perfectly possible to be single and to be perfectly fulfilled and to live a life that honours God, that lives and enjoys relationships in the right context and perhaps never a sexual relationship. But interestingly, if you're single and you long to be married, there are plenty of people, to put it bluntly, who are married and long to be single because both singleness and being married presents challenges. And often I think some single people think, if only I was married, it would solve this problem. And often many who are married say, if only I wasn't married, it would solve this problem. And yet, we have to believe that what God is doing with us at this stage in our life is God's best for us. So often in my life, I've not known what God is doing. It can be really challenging, but we have to trust that what we're going through is for our good. It's also important to remember that best is not the same as easiest. See, God never denies our heart's desire except to give us something easier, isn't the quote. He always denies us our heart's desire to give us something better. We need to trust his wisdom with that. So I just want to debunk a couple of lies to encourage you if you're single, uh, if you're married, to help you to relate better to those who are single. The first lie is that marriage will be a cure for your loneliness. Uh, You know, there are many people who are married who are incredibly lonely. Uh, There are a lot of people who live in unhappy marriages. Um, Many people who experience difficult periods in their marriages will get through them and experience lighter moments and easier moments. But it is a myth for single people that to be married suddenly you'll be fulfilled and everything you've always longed for will be the truth. I've spoken to a lot of people who are married who struggle being married. But we have to believe that that is what is God's best for that person at that time. I think something that doesn't help here, you know that verse in um, Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, it is not good for a man to be alone. I think often we misunderstand and we read into that verse, what happens is basically Adam was lonely and so God brought Eve to him. And there may have been a certain degree into which that's true, but more than that, the context explains in Genesis 2 that Adam was alone, it wasn't good for him to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. The purpose of bringing woman to man wasn't to cure his loneliness, but was so together they formed a team that could better serve God. That doesn't mean if you're single and you're not brought together with a a spouse, you cannot serve God. But the bringing together was about together in relationships, whether that's a married relationship or relationships with friends, together we serve better. It wasn't a cure for Adam's loneliness. Tim Keller helpfully says that The idolatry of marriage distorts some people's single lives can often go on to eventually distort their married lives if they find a partner. What he's basically saying is if you are single and you long to be married and believe that is what will make you ultimately fulfilled then you're ultimately looking for your spouse to be a functional saviour, to give you something that you're not receiving as a single person. And a husband and wife is never designed to be everything for you. They can't be. And when we set a husband and wife up to be everything, to satisfy us, they'll fail every single time. We were created to be satisfied in God alone. And when God, for a season, blesses us with a spouse, then that's a huge blessing, and together we serve God. But if he doesn't, that's his best for you too. I know that's hard to hear, but we need to believe that marriage is not a cure for loneliness. Second lie, it touches on it, is There are many people who are married and not sexually fulfilled. And we're going to talk about how pornography can affect this. Um, But I think as I've spoken, the gospel helps us to de-idolize both marriage and sex. Um, Both are there in terms of how I can serve God and be a better reflection of who he is. Marriage isn't there to make me fulfilled. Sex isn't there to make me fulfilled. They're both ultimately acts of service, of giving to the other. And so we mustn't believe that being married will satisfy us and we mustn't believe that having a sexual relationship will satisfy us. And the final truth, um, Paul is really clear that as a single person you have a great opportunity to serve God. Uh, Have a look at chapter 7, verse 32 and 33. Uh, Paul says, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. Now Paul's not having a downer on marriage there, saying that if you are devoted to your wife and you're loving her, that that's a bad thing and it's taking your eyes off God. Uh, becoming a married man changes, or a married woman changes your priorities. And sometimes as a single person you've got more energy and time to give in a more direct service to God. And then part of your marriage responsibility is to start serving your wife. Um, It's a big adjustment to make. Paul's not having a downer on marriage, but what he's really doing is focusing on singleness and saying, don't let culture or even the church say that being single, you are unfulfilled. It's a lie. Um, It it is wonderful being married. It's challenging, but it's wonderful. But being single is wonderful too. And the opportunities it can give, the freedom it can give, is an incredible blessing to be a blessing to others. Uh, Ultimately, because you haven't got to think too much about anybody else so you can give yourself more freely. And if you are single in this stage of your life, uh, that is a God's blessing to you. And I would just ask you, in the struggles you perhaps feel in that, ask God, how can you help me to be used more effectively for your gospel as a single person? Well, there's a lot more that could be said on this issue, but I just hope that we see that um, being single is God's gift to many people. And as a church, we need to be much, much better at involving single people and loving single people not just having groups for married and groups for single but together to encourage each other Uh, if you're single please pray for those who are married because it's difficult being married if you're married please pray for those who are single because it's difficult being single there's some things for us to think about but also in a world obsessed with sexual fulfillment I want to address this really difficult issue of pornography Um, just have a look at that headline that was on the news not long ago Uh, Some of the statistics I'll share with some of you tonight might terrify you, um, but it's important we engage with some of this. Pornography is a really big problem for many people, and actually it's becoming an increasing problem for women. It's not just a problem that men struggle with. Even married couples can struggle with some of these things, and we need to talk about some of these quite openly. Um, But not just men and women, the thing that I think is most scary is the access that technology is giving young people to pornography now. Uh, I want to watch a short video um, that a man called John Brown, who works for the um, NSPCC, Uh, it's about five minutes long, and it just explains from his point of view um, the dilemma we face as a culture, and I feel this will be hugely helpful. But before we do that, just show you some statistics. This is just a few months ago, Christianity Today... Um, asked 800 men in churches in this country about their struggles with pornography. Just look at some of these statistics. Are they going to click through, Grant? Here we go. We'll get there, hang on. Here we go. 90% 90% of church, people who are in churches fail, fail, feel that churches fail to address this issue. Uh, that's part of the reason that I felt it was really important that we address this issue here. That's a huge proportion of people who feel that churches just don't address an issue that's really significant for us. This is a frightening statistic. Three quarters of Christian men say that they view pornography on a monthly basis. Just looking around this room, that's a lot of guys here, if the statistics are true. It's a hidden thing and people don't see it and it might frighten you, it might disgust you, but it's often a reality. 42% of Christian men say they're addicted to pornography. That might frighten you. 30% of church leaders would say that they have looked at pornography. And 10% of Christians have paid for sex. Now, that's just some statistics, I think, primarily speaking about men. I, wouldn't, I haven't found any statistics for women, but I am aware that increasingly women are caught up with some of these things. But let's watch this video together, um, just to sort of put this in perspective a little more. Thank you, Grant. Technology.
1: Sometimes it seems you can access anything, anywhere, anytime. But what if that's children as young as six being able to view adult videos on the Internet? Research by the online video regulator shows nearly half a million people under the age of 18 watch pornography in the month of December. And that's just on a computer at home. It doesn't take the account material to be watched on mobile phones and tablets. And we can talk to John Brown now from the NFPCC about this. Uh, the headline I think that probably everybody will pick up on is that children as young as six are included in this
2: survey? Yeah, it's incredibly concerning. I mean, it's something that the NSPCC has been concerned about for some time. But I think uh, this this research from the Association for for Television on Demand really gives us a clear picture now to the extent of the the problem that that, that we're facing and the ease with which children and young people, children as young as 6, can get access to very, very sexually explicit material online.
1: How does that happen?
2: Well unfortunately far too easily. Um, because of the numerous ways now with which children and young people and all of us can get access on, online now um, it's, uh, it, it's far too easy uh, to, to get access to, to sexually explicit material. Like in the UK it's well regulated, in Europe generally speaking it's well regulated but the majority of this sexually explicit material on, on, on websites, it's coming from outside of Europe, uh, coming from the U.S., uh, from from Russia, from, from other, other parts of the world, where it's not properly regulated and there's no age verification or anything like that. So, uh, children and young know, people can simply go straight onto these sites. Occasionally, they're asked to simply click whether they're over 18, but even often that doesn't
1: happen, and then they're straight into very explicit sexual scenes. So, wh- where then? do you go with this? Because, I mean, everyone's playing catch-up with a lot of technology, aren't we? So we have a situation where the material is there, it is accessible, so how do you practically, within a household, try and protect can be. I think within a, within a household
2: certainly there have been developments in parental controls and certainly the uh, Prime Minister's speech at the NSPCC last uh, summer where he spoke about a number of things related to online safety but particularly in relation to children and young people getting access to inappropriate m- material there as a guarantee there in terms of developing parental controls and that's certainly happened and parents now um, taking on new broadband lines are faced with an unavoidable choice that
1: they need to make. And so you can have an absolute. Block, can you you can stop any uh, say over eighteen material mm-hmm. coming into coming through well, into your heart
2: Indeed, with a new broadband line, you can. And with existing customers, that, that, that unavoidable choice is going to be made for parents as well. But the challenge is, I think, really, with it, it's outside of the home and the range of devices now that the children and young people have. So, so you know, children it, it, from increasingly young ages are getting access to uh, to smartphones. Uh, they can access the internet through tablets um, and and through games consoles as well. So this this figure by by Apple is uh, you know definitely. Una- an underestimate. I think we need to assume that significant, significantly greater numbers are getting, are getting access to, to really inappropriate material. And, you know, what, done, what cannot happen is really have a kind of mass experiment and using, using children and young people as, as guinea pigs in a mass experiment in internet freedom. That, this, is, this has never happened ever before children have access to this sort of material. Is
1: it, what is the guidance for parents? Because, I mean, the best control is effectively to police your yourself, for a child not to go searching for it, that's the nature of young people, lots of ages to, to start looking for things isn't it, and now that, that applies to the internet how do you go about talking to your child about not, not, try, you know, not trying to look for those things because that's simply the best way not to see it is not to
2: look for it. I mean, having, having that conversation with your child is a really important thing. It's certainly something that the, the NSPCC have introduced, that our, our PANTS campaign that we've introduced, that enables, enables parents to have simple, basic conversations with their child about keeping themselves safe. And one of those things could be coming across this sort of material online. So I think that's, that's incredibly important. But you know, as well as that, we need legislation change, I think, to ensure that this material coming in from, out, from outside of Europe and across the world, that needs to be tightened up to cut off this financial model and to deal with that. We need more work with children in schools as well. And importantly, we need to understand the impact of this on children and young people. We don't know that yet. We know know the the extent of the problem now more from from this app of research, but we now need to understand the impact. And the NSPCC with the Office of the Children's Commissioner and the British Board of Film Classification are going to be undertaking some research to help us understand the impact of of, of all of this on children and young people. John
1: Brown from the NSPCC. Thank you very much indeed for coming to talk to
0: it's quite it's very scary isn't it terrifying really and uh, I think we really need to engage with the easy access that many people have to pornography today because it's absolutely rife and if those statistics are anywhere near the truth um, that is terrifying and a huge challenge to us as a church I think there's um, some pictures I'm going to come up now you know the first porn magazine that was ever sort of made was um, Playboy 1953, and the figure on the front I've heard was Marilyn Monroe, the sort of pin-up of the 50s and 60s. Um, That was sort of something that very few people had access to, but the problem we've got today is what's often termed soft porn. It's something that all teenagers have access to. Uh, These are some of the magazines that teenagers can just buy off a shelf um, in a newsagent. Uh, Dead easy. And these are some of the things they're exposed to, just sort of cheap and easy to access and just filling people's minds with images and thoughts. And it's that kind of culture where what used to be kind of a complete faux pas, we didn't go there, has become almost um, normal in pop culture. It's kind of normal. Even when I was growing up in a school, it was not normal for me. I was one of the very few guys in the boarding house who didn't have pictures of naked women on the walls. Um, That was seriously abnormal. Um, And that's scary, Um, but uh, it doesn't mean I didn't struggle with different things, but um, that was me and that was then. I think today is even worse because of the access we all have. So I want to just help us to see um, why this is such a problem. The first thing is really to say that it is a myth um, that pornography is harmless. Um, it, It distorts and objectifies your view of the opposite sex. It can even distort and objectify your view of yourself. Sorry, this is slightly graphic, but this is a headline in an American newspaper that pornography had led some women to having um, surgery to change the way that they looked because they'd seen images of themselves and didn't think that they looked right. Um, I think that is very, very scary, but that shows that it's not harmless. If you just go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, verse 16, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. And in many ways, pornography is kind of accessible prostitution, isn't it? It's sort of giving ourself, at least part of ourself, to someone else. And yet there's no relationship, there's no safety of marriage, there's no commitment, there's stimulation without any form of relationship. That's why Jesus himself spoke very sternly in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if anyone looks at a woman lustfully he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's a very strong reason why the Bible is very strong on sexual immorality, uh, and it's for our own good. Uh, One book I have read on this subject, which I found very helpful, was a a guy who um, took a a frame, a picture frame like this, and said, you place into this picture frame that image that you look at, uh, that video that you have been stimulated by, whatever it is, and he says, you might look at that image and it might seem completely harmless, just for a moment. But he says, look outside the frame. Look at the fact that that person was trafficked from Romania age 13. Look at the fact that though she's smiling in that picture, she's being forced to smile, but actually she's being abused by the pimps who control her life. Look at the drugs, look at the money. Look at all that's gone on outside of the frame that's allowed this to happen. I think it's a really helpful way to say that if we think pornography is innocent, it really is not. And just an image, a look, even if it's some sort of soft porn in a lad's magazine, it's not innocent because there's much, much that will have gone on to produce that picture. And these are people made in the image of God. That is why, in part, Paul challenges sexual immorality. So it's a lie to think that pornography is harmless. It's also a lie to think that it's not addictive, Um, Because pornography is accessible, because most often it's accessed in privacy, nobody else sees it. The problem with it is it will dull our appetite for real sex with real people, and it will increase our appetite for sexual fantasy. Uh, Many of you will have come across the film Fifty Shades of Grey that came out off the back of the book that was written, very controversial book, but the intrigue of it in many ways created a mass explosion in the number of people who read the books and watched the films. And what this film and this book did is it really glamorized sexual control. Um, It glamorized manipulation, seduction, and made that attractive, something kind of not spoken of but desired. And it's films like this that have created in people an urge to experience something that's outside of all that God has created, a good thing but abused, it's really fuelled fantasy, it's fuelled this idea of, of manipulation and being able to control a person of the opposite sex, rather than the biblical picture of vulnerability, the biblical picture of giving. And these kind of films that again have become mainstream pop culture, um, everyone goes to see these kind of things. We're just absorbing this information without any kind of filters to the impact that it can have on the way that we view other people. Um, men particularly we know that we are more visually stimulated than women so films and magazines can be a real trouble women though often more stimulated through thoughts um, dreaming perhaps of the perfect marriage or that perfect relationship reading those romantic novels that perhaps appear to be completely harmless but speaking of relationships that give you a longing that mean you're not satisfied as you are or paint a picture of a man who very few men can ever be and so your husband perhaps is held up on a pedestal to be something he can't be because these superstars you see on TV and we never live up to what they look like physically um, what they apparently can do in bed with a woman these sort of things we absorb all the time and it's really important we understand the impact of them I want to watch another very short video that just talks about the science of pornography addiction Um, this might be helpful for us to see why this is such a big problem but just have a look at this
3: from person to person. But with the current pornography epidemic, as some call it, one has to wonder how exactly this may affect our desires and perception of sexuality. Moreover, how does it affect our sex lives? Pornography constitutes about 25% of all search engine requests and is the fourth most common reason people give for going on the internet. And while it may seem to simply facilitate an instinctual sexual response linked to millions of years of evolution, the truth is pornography has dynamically changed over time, ultimately molding our tastes and The not-so-shocking truth is that pornography has profound consequences for the brain and acts in many ways like a drug. With prolonged exposure, your tolerance is increased and many often find themselves addicted. Though it's not a physical substance, it leads to the same general loss of control, the compulsiveness to seek out the activity despite negative consequences and withdrawal when it goes away, much like that of gambling or running, for example. The issue is that continued exposure can cause long-term or even lifelong neuroplastic change in the brain. Dopamine is released as a reward whenever we accomplish something, whether it be eating to sustain life or sexual activity to produce future life. And this dopamine consolidates neural connections in order to drive us to perform the same activity in the future. In other words, it alters and forms the brain cells to motivate certain actions. It rewires your brain. The National Institutes of Health measure drug addictiveness by testing rats. The rat is trained to press a button in order to get a drug, and the harder it works indicates how addictive the substance is. It turns out that the more addictive a drug is, the more dopamine we see released. And while there is, unfortunately, no rat form that we can give to them, we do know that dopamine is also released during sexual excitement, which pornography plays right into. The more time you spend doing it, the more dopamine gets released, which reinforces the behavior and makes you not only desire it in the future, but require it. And as you begin to imagine these images away from the computer or while having sex, they become reinforced. Furthermore, each orgasm releases even more dopamine, which consolidates the connections made during the session. It's a feedback loop that becomes harder to escape. And just like a drug, your tolerance for visual stimulation has now compounded, making it more difficult to be turned on by reality. Pornography addiction can often lead to finding your mate less attractive. The good news is, it doesn't have to be permanent. Usually when people understand the mechanism and realize it's affecting their relationships, they can stop. The brain is often described as the use-it-or-lose-it system because the neural connections you stimulate grow stronger and desire to be activated, while the ones you ignore become weakened. Much like your muscles, which, if sitting still all day, itch for activity, but after prolonged non-use, they become complacent. Luckily, because of this "use it or lose it" brain, the same neuroplastic system that proliferates these habits can also be used to acquire healthier ones. Got a burning question you want answered? Ask it in the comments or on Facebook
0: and Twitter. See what what that video is saying. Just from a scientific point, is that we have a desire. And then that desire gets reinforced to something that we then require. And it's, and this circle goes round. And this addiction enslaves, doesn't it, um, as the book of Proverbs says, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of men. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul talks about people in chapter 4 whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Um, if this is something you've ever struggled with, Um, you'll know it goes something like this. There's that urge to look at something. Whatever it is that's created that urge, loneliness or experimentation, whatever it is, something you've seen somewhere else, there's this urge. And then your conscience kicks in. Don't do it. You speak back to your conscience and go, it's just a quick look. I'll just do it for a minute. And in that moment, your conscience is screaming at you again. But then when you block your ears and you harden your heart, you then pursue that thing and in that moment your conscience has been dulled or deadened that little bit and the next time your conscience gets dulled again and again and again and what first screamed at you, don't do it, now just becomes kind of like, well it's just normal but the really frightening thing is when our conscience is dulled in this area because of its power, our conscience then gets dulled in other areas of our life and we find that sin gets a grip on us in much more difficult ways in other areas all because of one thing that got hold of us So just thinking simply about the science of how pornography addiction works, we need to take Paul's words seriously. That is why we are to flee it, because Paul knows it's a challenge for many people. Friends, pornography is is not harmless. It does great harm. Um, It is addictive, and it also fails to satisfy. And we've talked about that, haven't we? But ultimately, what lies behind that desire and urge to view pornography or pornographic material is that good desire for connection, that good desire for relationship because we're wired for relationship but what we do when a person looks at pornography it's pursuing something that isn't in a relationship it's pursuing something for some form of stimulation outside of the intended place for which god created a good gift namely sex so we have to believe that it will never satisfy us and there was a um, one of the episodes of friends um, it's called the one with free porn and Chandler and Jerry discover the delight of free pornography on a TV channel. They leave it on and watch endlessly because they're worried that the channel will go away. But later Chandler says to Joey, I was just at the bank and there was this really attractive girl behind the desk but she didn't ask me to go into the vault and have sex with her. Jerry describes a similar cold shoulder from the pizza delivery woman. You know what Chandler concludes? We have to turn off the porn. Their experiences, whatever they witnessed, was promising something that wasn't a reality. And in real life, whatever was on the video wasn't the reality. And it hit them between the eyes. And they realized this was never going to satisfy. And we need to trust and believe that it will never satisfy us. And the final thing, um, pornography brings deep-rooted shame. Uh, That Christianity Today survey that I mentioned earlier with the bubbles and the percentages... Showed that people in churches would be more comfortable admitting to a heroin addiction than admitting to a porn addiction. Because there's something hidden, I guess, about the shame of pornography that is different to even something as serious as a heroin addiction. That shows how big a problem it is. And the amazing thing is, Satan wants to keep these kinds of sins hidden. He wants you to feel unbelievably guilty and have nowhere to go. That's exactly what he wants. So just in our last moments, I want to help us if this is something you struggle with and if it's not something you struggle with to pray for those that do struggle. Just a few very simple things to think about. Uh, The first one, very obvious, but actually it's probably the single biggest thing for overcoming these problems is to admit you're struggling. Because if you can't admit you're struggling then it's a, a thing that will eat you alive on the inside and it will remain a hidden sin for years and years and years and do great damage as we've already talked about. Now, that's admitting it to God, ultimately, because our sins come before him. But also admitting it to others. And so the second thing that can often be helpful is to gather trusted friends around you. Uh, Probably not appropriate to confess all in front of a whole church, uh, expose you and make you hugely vulnerable. But I would say it's always right to say something to someone. Uh, And church must never be a place where you don't feel safe, to have one trusted friend who you can just say, I need to share this with you because it actually matters and I need you to walk with me through this difficulty Uh, Martin Luther, um, the reformer in the 16th century said this you can't stop birds flying over your head but you can stop them making a nest in your hair we'll all be exposed to these pressures and struggles but with the help of friends often that enables us to be stronger so that we can say no to temptation So admit you're struggling. Gather one or two trusted friends around you. Here's the most significant thing. I want each of us, if you struggle with this, to remind yourself of the gospel every day. I mean, that's a habit that we should do as Christians all the time anyway, for all of our sin. But if you struggle with pornography, remind yourself of the gospel, that Christ died for you, to forgive you from these things. That's really important, because the guilt and the shame that can come with this kind of problem can keep you from Jesus. And that's exactly what Satan wants to do. And yet the gospel says, come to me and you'll find forgiveness in me. And more importantly, you'll find the power as God's spirit transforms your life to enable what was an addiction to be replaced with an affection for something greater. And that's where the last thing comes in. And really we end where we ended last week. But ultimately the key to all of these things is to learn to adore God more. There's a really helpful book tackling the issue of pornography called Captured by a Better Vision. But it would be a great title for most books dealing with sin. Because the heart of dealing with sin ultimately is not a behavioural thing, but a heart thing. Uh, If you battle with the struggles of being single, that's not ultimately a behavioural thing, it's a heart thing. If you battle with the struggles of being married, it's not a behavioural thing, it's a heart thing. And if you battle with pornography, it's the same. It's not ultimately a behavioural thing, it's a heart thing. And so I think in many ways, the question should will be asking is not so much, do you want to give up looking at porn, but more a case of not needing it. Because that longing, the right longing you have for intimacy, for relationship, to be wanted, you find in the gospel. You find in Jesus Christ when he replaces those very strong desires you have with a desire that's even stronger. And such is his love that he can replace those desires and give us a new hope. Uh, One book said, uh, the goal is ultimately not to give up porn, but to start worshipping Jesus. Because as we've seen so many times, we can only worship one thing in our life. And the question for each of us is, what is it going to be? So can I encourage each of us, God wants his very best for you. And the truth that we've seen in the gospel is that the very best only comes to us when we find our true and ultimate satisfaction in him. And that is what we need to pray for each other as individuals and as a church. Amen.